Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by the amazing, the talented, the one and only Mr. Daniel Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. What's shaking, Dan? Well, I uh, no longer care about baseball, but the two football teams I root for are combined 3-0, and so uh, so far so good. Uh, do you have any celebratory gloating you want to do regarding the Dodgers? NL West champs seven straight years, and yeah. That'll do it. I, but, you know, we have 11 big wins in October to do. So then I'll blow. Excellent. I will I will be cheering right along with you, albeit at a slightly lower volume. Sounds good. Well, let's segue to headlines. What do you say, Dan? We better because we got a good, good podcast ahead of us and some news. Yes. So diving into headlines, let's start with the renewal front. Danny McBride's Righteous Gemstones is returning for its second season on HBO. And Comedy Central has picked up South Park for three more seasons through season 26 in 2022. It's a big uh, renewal. It's vaguely remarkable. Uh, you know, we we probably do not give it enough credit. I certainly don't because I stopped watching it about 13 seasons ago. But in any way, that's no one in the world would have guessed that the show would still be going back in the day when it was the Christmas thing that people were passing around before anyone knew what viral and going viral was. So very impressive. Oh, well, uh, THR's Ryan Parker has a great interview with the South Park creators up on the site. So it's a must read where they talk about cancel culture and how much longer they see the show going. It's a good one. On the executive front, Bill McGoldrick and his top lieutenant, Alex Sepial, will serve as head of programming and drama, respectively, for NBC's upcoming streaming service, which remains without a name. And elsewhere in the NBCU fold, E! Entertainment president Adam Sotsky is departing the cable network. He's been there for a long time. A replacement hasn't been named. And it's at, at a time when the, when they are plotting a greater focus on pop culture news rather than originals. So I think we it's a network a, to watch. I think we may need an air horn to uh, wake up some of the listeners on that one. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. On the casting front, it's a big one. Big, busy week there. Amanda Peet and Christian Slater are starring in season two of Bravo turned USA Network anthology Dirty John. Season two will focus on the story of Betty Broderick. Go get your Wikipedia out or head to THR and read the story. John C. Riley has replaced Michael Shannon in HBO's Lakers drama, which is confusingly called Showtime. A show called Showtime on HBO. So not I really liked Michael Shannon in that role. So, oh, well, what can you do? Yes. And of course, John C. Riley will play Jerry Buss. Elsewhere, Haley Steinfeld is in early talks to star alongside Jeremy Renner in Disney Plus Marvel drama Hawkeye. Liv Tyler will star opposite Rob Lowe in Fox's 911 spinoff Lone Star. And Uzo Aduba has joined the cast of Fargo opposite Chris Rock. Last but not least, Whoopi Goldberg has boarded the stand at CBS All Access in her return to TV acting full time. So much TV. Yeah. And last but certainly not least, acclaimed novelist and writer Walter Mosley quit Star Trek Discovery after being warned not to use the N-word in the writer's room. My own read would be that Walter Mosley should be allowed to say what he wants, especially when he's recounting his own personal history. On the other hand, I am 100% sure that it is not my job, right, or in my best interest to police who can say that particular word. I cannot. Yeah, nor will I. Nor, nor do I have any yeah. desire to. So in any case, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, he's... Walter Mosley is a significant figure, and it was no doubt probably a boon to Star Trek Discovery to have him on the show, so... Yeah, oh well. he, he was in the writer's room for three weeks before he walked off, so... Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off, Apple has finally announced a launch date and a price point, and it's very interesting. 
the service Apple TV Plus will launch November 1st and cost five bucks a month. So a cup of coffee or, as Tim Cook said during the presentation, the price of a rental, of a movie rental. And more importantly, the service comes free for a year with the purchase of any new Apple hardware. So an iPhone, a Macintosh computer. Do people still call it Macintosh? <laughs> a Mac computer? I don't know. It's been so, a while since anyone's yeah. referred to it as a Macintosh. So you buy a new Apple product and you get a year of this service for free. And it's very, very interesting, Dan. Well, it's something is what it is. And we've been very vocal and critical of the way that Apple has handled this rollout and of the number of different times that they've teased us and not told us how much anything cost and not told us how much or when rather anything was premiering. And we got a premiere date also. Would you like to tell the kids the premiere date? November 1st. And the service will launch with four scripted originals. So the morning show starring Reese Witherspoon, Jennifer Aniston and Steve Carell. C, the Jason Momoa epic uh, genre drama, Dickinson starring Haley Steinfeld, and For All Mankind, the space race drama from Ron Moore of Battlestar Galactica and Outlander fame. So yeah, so we've we've complained that they have not given us that particular information in the past, and therefore we should give them credit for giving us that information now, and let's be real, $5 a month is not extreme it's uh it's, it's the a, cheapest of all of the services right now it is also the least content of all of exactly. the services which makes it entirely reasonable also that whole free for a year with new hardware thing is a lot of people getting excited about it um it, it's it, a very telling strategy <laughs> It says that it costs absolutely nothing for them, so they want it to be kind of value-added, which is probably their best interest. Exactly. You know, um, I did a story with Natalie Jarvie, and we spoke to agents and analysts alike, and, and many of them said the same thing, that that price point is telling of a larger strategy that they're not so much in the original programming business to be in the original programming business. They're in that space to sell more iPhones and Macs. Which is That's reasonable, it is. and yeah. it's, 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 it's a, you know, comparatively speaking, it's basically like Amazon. You you know, shows like Jack Ryan and Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, that is a value plus to subscribe to Amazon Prime to get so you can buy get your toilet paper delivered next day for free without paying for shipping. Which I truly appreciate. In in this case, you know. Look, my laptop, which is a MacBook Pro, is on the verge of dying. It could die at any time. My iPhone is on the verge of dying. It could die at any time. Let me assure you, getting the opportunity to have access to four more TV shows for free is really not going to be a deciding yeah. factor for me. So that doesn't really matter. But five yeah. bucks is okay. And they did this all very efficiently. You know, the first time around when they did that big Cupertino thing that we've made fun of extensively, that was a 90 minute presentation and of which about half of it was platitudes and pomposity. That's being about, generous saying half. It was there more was like also, 80, 90 percent. But you're basically blocking out the all the time they talked about games and Apple News I'm, at that I'm thing. speaking specifically about the, the the focus on television i'm not going to comment on things like games and and technology stuff that i that that's not my beat but when they did that they basically they they were sort of being it was all puffery and whatever and and this was better than that on the other hand you know they basically did it all in like 10 minutes uh and of that three of those minutes was a trailer for c which i would say looks pretty dull but it could be okay. It, it seems it, it to me, it raises many more questions than it actually piques my interest. So yeah, basically they, they did better this time. 
Yay. Yeah, but I mean, it, it is a telling strategy, and you know, because they don't have a library, it makes sense that this that this price point is what it is, and and that it comes free, and they're trying to build up that library with these originals. So as far as their the rollout, it'll be for some shows three episodes at launch, and then weekly. And other shows, they haven't detailed which, will be available in the binge model. The next wave of shows features stuff like Little America from the creators of The Big Sick. But yeah, they're, they need to build a library. And this price point, I wouldn't be surprised to see it stay where it is and let this let Apple TV Plus build up a programming roster and maybe get a, a hit show or two. And by hit, I mean, I don't even know how <laughs> we're going to describe that. I mean, I guess hit is if people are reading our coverage about it. I don't know. It's hard to tell you know, beyond a series of tweets, because everyone's going to write about the morning show, but that doesn't say anything about quality or what viewers think of it. Or And, and as we know, critical scores don't necessarily mean that a show is a hit because it's impossible to tell on the streaming service, you know, without getting actual numbers. Yeah, it's, it's a mystery. I mean, to me, they really probably could have rolled out with six months free for everybody and then gradually lured people in. And this to me is, is about... But they want to sell new products. Yeah, this to me is as close to... Be, being free as they could have without setting a precedent for being free. So this way they, you know, they're, I, I don't think yeah, anyone. 60 bucks a year. It yeah. is basically nothing. Basically. On the other hand, I'm not going to tell anyone that that's like good value again for three shows. So it would not surprise me if a lot of people who laptops aren't about to die and whose phones aren't about to die are perfectly content to wait until there's actually a little bit more of a backload and until uh, you know two or three of them have established themselves as being maybe hypothetically worth watching you know five dollars a month is not that much but on the other hand once we keep doing one service after another service after another service with their price points it we're well past the point at which it adds up yeah and i mean no one i mean i think that you know outside of the tv community and our and our fun little bubble here i don't know that that the average person at starbucks is going to go walk into the apple store and say i need to buy this new iphone so i get a year of this tv service like if you're spending a thousand dollars a little bonus that you're getting something that costs $60 for free. I don't know how, how much that's an incentive to buy a new product. It, for, for most people, it isn't going to be. They're going to be like, what am I going to get with this? And they're so going to get like, a new phone and you get a new computer. <laughs> and if you and like by Je- the way, if you care about television, Jennifer you can watch Anderson. Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> yeah. Well, closing out uh, that, you know, we should also note that BET announced this week that it would launch its service, BET Plus, for $9.99 a month. On September 19th, and that will include originals like the Bounced Around First Wives Club reboot and I think one or two other shows, plus an extensive library of content, including Martin, which will stream for the first time on that service. So they're building that up. It's going to have a ton of Tyler Perry stuff. They will add originals. They've got a lot of their library stuff. They've got just a a, a crazy amount of programming. It's, It's actually quite impressive, and it's very much flying under the radar because it's BET, and we're consumed by writing about netflix and disney plus and apple and all these other services but i don't know about value but when you compare the two 9.99 for you know for a month for bet with a massive amount of of library product versus five bucks a month for four shows on apple yeah the again it's i feel as if and we've talked about this over and over again that apple is kind of underestimating the importance of library programming you know when when cbs all access launched they also launched only with one or two shows that were originals but they had an entire vast library and that was value apple maybe does not have that i don't know that bet's originals necessarily justify a 9.99 price point but the library is a library there's and value it has value 
Yeah. Well, moving on to our next topic and sticking with the streaming of it all, Disney Plus has scrapped its second show, The Muppets. Number two. Dan, it's time to sing the song. It's time to sing the music. Time to sound the music. What's the song? It's time to play the music. It's time to light the light. It's time to meet the Muppets on the Muppet Show tonight. The Muppets, it's going to be a while before it returns again. I can only do the Stadler and Waldorf part. It's, uh, you know, it's genetic. That's fair. But if, on, you want, but if you want me to inquire why we always come here and lament that I guess we'll never know, I can certainly do that. Yeah. So anyway, so The Muppets is the second show that Disney Plus has scrapped. Uh, the first one being Michael Seitzman's Book of Enchantment, the Disney villains show, which is also surprising. But sources say the creative differences started when Kitsis, Horowitz, and Gad all had a pitch. It was called Muppets Live Another Day, and it filled in the blanks of what happened after Muppets Take Manhattan. They had a green light from Muppet Studios executive Debbie McClellan who had been working with them on this project for months. However, she decided to leave the company and Disney CEO Bob Iger tapped someone from the Disney Parks Live Entertainment Division named David Lightbody to oversee the Muppet Studio. And he had a different idea in mind and it wasn't what Kitsis Horowitz and Gad had been working on. The new Muppet Studio exec offered the trio the chance to do something different. And the guys basically said, no, we like what we did. We don't want to throw it all away. We believe in this. And they just decided to part ways. So Muppets, not happening. I don't understand why it's a hard show to crack. I mean, that ABC reboot should have been great. That had hit from the minute they unspooled that like 15 minute pilot presentation at Comic-Con where it got a standing ovation. The show, of course, debuted once we saw the screeners and everything else. The reviews were terrible. It was depressing. They changed showrunners halfway through and, and fired Bob Cashel. And then it got canceled a couple of weeks later, even after a creative revamp for the second half of season one. I just don't get why we're overthinking the Muppets. That That's the part that confuses me. But the ABC show also was overthinking the Muppets. Like, I don't need Muppet mythology. I don't need Muppets for a new generation. I don't need edgy new adult Muppets. There are, honestly are no gaps that I required being filled in the Muppet canon to me, make the Muppet Show again. Why would you not just do three sketches, a celebrity guess, a musical performance, a funny introduction by Kermit, little meta humor here and there, but just do the Muppet Show and again. And a little sketch, yeah. I mean, and they, look, they still are doing the Muppets short form show that Disney Plus announced back at D23. Again, that's going to feature celebrity guests. I mean, I'm guessing when they say short form, it's, you know, the 10 minute variety, but... If you want to do the Muppets show, literally do the Muppets show. I mean, again, I think there's sort of, I don't want to say there's a stench because it's not a stench, but I think there's a perception that they brought back the Muppet show a decade ago whenever they did that and it failed or failed relatively speaking. But that was a different era. Expectations were different. No one understood delayed viewing. The, the audience today that would be perfectly happy to have a weekly funny guest star driven Muppet show is every bit enough to be an important component of a streaming service that already has 600 episodes of The Simpsons, 75 different Marvel TV shows, and all, all the Marvel this, library and all the Disney else. animated features. It yeah. does, you know, this that's the other thing is this does not need to be a load bearing show for Disney Plus. It can just make sure that people have the Muppets if they want to have the Muppets. Yeah, it is interesting, you know, at these upstart services, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Apple scrapping a show called Bastards as they kind of figured out tonally what their shows are. 
And, you know, Disney Plus, it sounds like the same thing happened on Book of Enchantment, where it may have come in a little bit too dark. That's certainly one of the rumors that going around about what happened there after they basically picked up that show to series two different times. But yeah, so it's not easy to launch a new platform and when you don't really have a proven brand. I mean, you obviously Disney has a brand, but what is its streaming brand versus what's on Hulu versus what's on ABC versus Freeform and Disney Channel and Disney? Oh, my God, you get the point. You do. I'm not worried. I think we will see the Muppets again. I think we will see the Muppets probably in ways that make us happy and perhaps in ways that make us slightly disappointed. Some of us are still smarting a little bit from the ABC series. But yeah, I'm not I'm not worried about seeing the Muppets again. I just you don't you don't need to be fancy. Yeah. Give me Muppets. Well, moving on to our third topic this week. Bad Robot and Warner Media is finally official. Number three. Months after The Hollywood Reporter exclusively reported that Warner Media was the finalist to land Bad Robot, guess what? Warner Media this week officially confirmed that it has indeed signed Bad Robot, J.J. Abrams' big production company, to a new deal. The five-year deal, which sources now estimate is worth $250 million, instead of the $500 million previously reported, we'll see Abrams and his Bad Robot banner continue to produce new TV projects, feature films video games and digital products for Warner Media. This is the first time that JJ's film and TV deals have been housed in the same company and it shows a big investment on Warner Media's part. And as for the number, the 250 million, sources say that that could climb upwards to a billion dollars if he is able to successfully launch a new Warner Brothers-based feature film franchise. It's a lot. That's a lot of money. Um how does this deal differ from a lot of the other big deals we've been getting lately, particularly in terms of the number of different divisions that it seems to be going under? Because that was the thing that I found most impressive by the announcement is, is the number of different places this content could go. Yeah, that was said to be very, very important to Abrams and his wife and Bad Robot CEO, Katie McGrath, in finding a new deal. So I'm told that Apple came very, very close to signing him. There was a lot of money involved in what would have probably been some kind of equity stake in Bad Robot. But what Apple lacked was a roster of IP. It all is coming back to the library titles. You know, when you look at Warner Brothers, they've got all things DC, Harry Potter. Those are just two franchises off the top of my head. So could JJ do a DC movie? Possibly. It's not like he didn't have a Superman script that some people liked. <laughs> exactly. But they want him to create for all these different platforms. Bad Robot launched a video game division last year. They want to be in every major arena. And video games is a massively profitable sector that we don't talk about enough. And our Patrick Shanley here at THR, our new video game editor, certainly does. But it is a massive multi-billion dollar business that flies under the radar, at least, you know, in my circles. But what's interesting in terms of the financials is when you think about it, look, Ryan Murphy got $300 million at Netflix because they bought out a lot of his shows. American Horror Story, they bought out the back end. So he no longer has profit participation in that, meaning... Disney, which now owns American Crime Story, doesn't have to pay him for that show. Warner Brothers did the same thing with Greg Berlanti in that they bought out his points and back-end profit participation in shows like Flash and Arrow and among others. That's why those deals are so eye-popping. $300 million, $400 million. Shonda, however, went to Netflix. She's getting, if memory serves, it's $100 million over four years, so $25 million, which now seems like a bargain in the landscape that we're in when you look at Benioff and Weiss and they basically created one show. So 
Here with JJ, there is no back-end deal. So if $250 million over five years seems low, it's because there's no back-end that they're buying out. He's not getting any upfront sum. When Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan moved to Amazon from Warner Brothers, part of that of what made that deal so high is that Warner Brothers paid them out for their services in, in Westworld, meaning they have them under contract for, I'm told, three more seasons. I believe it's three more seasons. I have to go back and check my reporting. But they've paid them in advance for their services on Westworld to allow them to go in and, and Amazon. And that helped inflate their deal. But with Bad Robot, this is basically, I, I'm told that there may be an equity stake that Warner Media is getting in Bad Robot, but it's also, they're not buying anything from the company. They're keeping JJ in-house and they're affording him to expand in areas like video games and digital. And basically, if there's content that he wants to do, they want him to do it for Warners. And the big difference here is that it will allow him to sell to outside suppliers. So JJ's got three shows set up at Apple, all produced by Warner Brothers Television. If he has more ideas, Warner Brothers is going to do the same thing. Wherever is the best platform for this show, that's where they will sell it. So if JJ has an idea and he wants to take it to Netflix, they'll sell it to Netflix and Warner Brothers will produce it and they'll get the money that way. Whereas Apple, I'm told, wanted him exclusively. And then you add the film component, you know, look, he ended a long relationship with Paramount to come into Warner Brothers. He's going to create new franchises for them. And he will continue to honor those pre-existing commitments to things like Star Wars and any other projects that he already had in the works. What remains unclear, however, is if the film component will remain exclusive. So will Warner Brothers say in three years, if Disney comes to, to JJ and says, we want you to direct this, you know, Star Wars, the, you know, Boba Fett strikes back and R2-D2's backstory or something, then that's a conversation. But Apple wanted JJ exclusively. So it's it's interesting to say the least. And it shows the value of some of these top producers and the bigger issues that, that arise when exclusivity is on the table and when it's not. That's, I think, the, the most fascinating part about all of that, because that was a long explanation of a lot of stuff. But the numbers are so mind boggling and it's always worth keeping a perspective, the perspective you just gave the nice listeners on what the different stakes are in these different deals and why a $500 million deal is not necessarily, you know, that much more valuable than a $250 million deal if the $250 million deal allows you more back-end participation, allows you more flexibility. In any case, lots of different reasons for people to be taking these very large deals, most particularly it's a lot of money. Yeah, we chose the wrong part of this job, Dan. <laughs> Look, if I had the powers to be J.J. Abrams, I probably would be J.J. Abrams. Yeah. Well, moving on and speaking of prolific showrunners, we are thrilled to introduce our next showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. Joining us this week is the creator of hits like Ally McBeal, Doogie Howser, The Practice, Boston Public, and exec producer behind hits including L.A. Law and more recently, Big Little Lies and Mr. Mercedes. We are thrilled to welcome the one and only, the legendary David E. Kelly to TV's Top 5. Welcome, David E. Kelly. Thank you. So season three of Mr. Mercedes, which premieres this week, is another investigation involving Brendan Gleeson's uh, Bill Hodges. But there's an entirely new mystery. There's an, basically an entirely new supporting cast. The almost sort of anthology aspect of the show, how important is that to keeping your appetite going on this project? Uh, excellent question, because we kind of box ourselves into a corner. We, the, the series was based on three books, and we did the second book. Uh, the third book, rather, second. So we had run the Mr. Mercedes storyline kind of 
It's full gamut with uh, Harry Treadway's character. He dies at the end of year two. No spoiler alerts for people that <laughs> haven't watched and binging. You may have to edit that out. But in, <laughs> but in year three, we all scratch our heads, and that was the first question. Okay, is there still life in this series, or should we, we close it there? And obviously, we decided on the latter. The first thing that, that drew me to the series was the character of Bill Hodges, mining his emotional life, the pathos of that retired police detective still searching for relevancy. And there was still more stuff to be mined within that character. I, I found myself getting excited about where we could go exploring him and also other characters, Holly Gibney in the show. And then there was also the legal consequences of the the final act of uh, season two. And um, we thought we could stay true to those consequences and explore the what happens next scenario from from that grisly ending to season two. So we gave it a go, and we found some terrific actors to jump on board. And uh, the book, it was based on Stephen's book, the second book, and um, we started with that, and there was great material in there for, for us to dive into. You guys have gotten some tremendous reviews, especially yeah. from the amazing Dan Feinberg <laughs> and THR. Um, but I, I wonder, you know, in this crowded landscape, you know, it's approaching 500 scripted originals. Does it frustrate you when it comes to trying to it's cut through? Crazy. I mean, honestly, it's just. I mean, this particular show, it feels like the tree that fell in the forest. We've maybe have gotten more reviews than viewers. <laughs> I, I don't know. I will tell you, I, I've never been stopped on the street and said, "Hey, love that Mr. Mercedes." I know some people are watching it, but it's sort of been born into this huge landscape, as you say. And uh, breaking through the clutter has been difficult. The, the, the comment I get most from people is, hey, I hear it's a great show. I have no idea how to watch it. Uh, if they don't have direct TV, they can't. But it, it is frustrating. I would say all that frustration is tempered by the fun we have doing it. When, when we started out, we knew this was not going to be a show, just because of where we're platforming, it was not going to be a show that reached into everybody's homes. Brendan Gleason was someone I was dying to work with, so when we got him on board, we were all rubbing our hands together and said, let's, let's go have fun. And, and we continued to sort of abide by that compass. If we're enjoying what we're doing and we're given the freedom to do what we want to do, then then we should be grateful and just hope there's a constituency out there for it. Yeah, it's and like, we had a big enough one to justify year two, obviously, and a big, a big enough one in year two to justify year three, but um, not a big audience, as you point out. Yeah, but it's also kind of like, I don't know how, you know how much you pay attention to the TV news, but you know Netflix cancels one day at a time and it moves to pop and it becomes a small, goes from it being a small fish in a big mm -hmm. pond to being yeah. the big fish in a small pond at pop. Right. And I mean, that's kind of you know, how I see so many audience network. <laughs> I, I, first of all, it's hard enough for us, but we don't have to keep track of everything. <laughs> Your job is to sort of follow those bouncing balls and, and moving pods, and I don't know how you do it. It's like there's a wave, and it's constantly cresting, and it keeps coming. But you, I mean, you had all those years on network where you had to deal with the waking up the morning after and hearing the overnight Nielsen's and having to stress out about mm -hmm. a deviation of 0 0.1 in the demo and all that. 
is it somewhat more zen to not have to deal with that? I suppose that's a, that is true. But we also had the currency of waking up the next morning and people would be talking about what was on the night before. It wasn't always positive. It could be critical. It could be complimentary. But you were in a, a zeitgeist, sometimes some shows bigger than others. But the landscape was so small and the choices were so limited that if you put something on the air, at least when I started, it was going to get seen, sampled, maybe rejected, but it was going to get seen. And certainly if you made a good show, you would probably carve a place out in the television landscape and survive just fine. Now, making a good show is just a beginning because there are so many good shows on television. And if you, if you say to a friend or colleague, um, I saw this really great show last night, you might hear, yeah, so? Because there are many. <laughs> Give me the reason why I should watch that great show over this good one and that great one and this fine one. Uh, so it's more incumbent upon creators now to not just make a good show, but to make a show that viewers will innately want to watch because when they sit down at the end of the day and if it's been a long day, they want to lean into something that they can look forward to. And also the burden of breaking through the clutter, I think, has resulted on all of us really trying to strike conceptual uh, notes right off the bat. And the, the balance is, if, because, if you, because if you don't hit right off the bat, you, you're not going to survive. And when I started, of course, it was 100 years ago, but in the, in the days of L.A. Law, you were given 26 episodes. And if, if no one was watching after week six, seven, eight, nine, but it was inching up and incrementally, you were fine. As long as you were inching up, you were given time to cultivate and build your audience. That obviously changed. You now needed to score and, and, and secure an audience in two or three episodes or you could be gone 10 years ago. Yeah, or now, instead of... Now there's a remote and they're clocking you at the end of that first act break or now there's no act breaks and they're, they're checking the numbers the next day. Yeah, or, or 365 days later yes. as, as some outlets are doing it digitally speaking. So right. regarding Audience Network, I, I really wonder, you know, with parent company AT&T, now WarnerMedia, launching its own streaming service, you know, it's going to have friends on it. That's already going to have pretty wide appeal. What have have execs at Audience Network told you about the future of the platform and, you know, the possibility of moving? Not a whole lot, really. Not a whole lot. We've not had a lot of contact with uh, Audience Network. The beauty of that is, as I said, we've been free to make our product and uh, they've stayed true to their word to, to stay out of our creative way. But there is a little bit of a, um, a vacuum. We don't, we don't know uh, what their plans are. And uh, that's another issue that, that goes beyond audience network, the, the secrecy between Amazon and Netflix and some of their analytics. We don't have all the information. <laughs> Sometimes they're asking us to hit a target audience or a specific demographic, and we have no idea where those goalposts lie. Well, speaking of making your show, obviously when you make the jump from broadcast over to streaming and cable, there's there's bound to be like a, a little window where you're like, ooh, I can swear, or ooh, we can have nudity, or yay, I can tell the story in 50 minutes. But I have to assume that eventually wears off, you know, the, the, the sort of joy of the boundaries you get to push off. Yeah. So, so what sort of are you finding that you enjoy 
about these different services. I think the latter one the most, the, the ability to tell stories straight without commercial interruptions, to have 50 minutes, 55 minutes, or possibly 60 if you needed to tell an episode. And when in broadcast days, we were down to 41 minutes, if you can believe that, by by the time I was doing a show called Harry's Law. I think on LA Law, we started at 48 plus, and the erosion of time and the, the, the increase in commercial interruptions made it very difficult to tell the more slowly, emotionally building stories. You could still come out and thump with the Dodge Ram commercials and, and hit the, the hard beats hard and make the noise you needed to make to compete. But those soft, emotionally building stories became more difficult to tell. And I think on cable and in streaming, where you get the time and the patience, that there's more currency for that kind of storytelling. And that's what, what I've enjoyed most. The swearing and the content, that's... Uh, um, some You want to be true to characters and true to the way people speak, so that helps. But um, I never found that to be a big inhibitor on broadcast. Um, it was more the censorship of subject matter that, that would ruffle my feathers. And um, that kind of censorship, oddly enough, in the last five years has been more corporate than, than governmental. You know, speaking of, of broadcast, you are one of the few creators who has had shows on each of the big four. Mm -hmm. And I always go back to the comment you made at TCA a few years ago when you were there for Goliath on Amazon that you were done with broadcast. Uh, cut to, you know, that you thought you were probably. done. Probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now, of uh, course, you've got Lincoln Lawyer in development yes. at CBS. It, it will always be project driven with me. And I would say the bulk of my material, and, you know, because I'm old, so who knows how much I've got left in the tank, but will still be on cable and streaming because I do like the freedoms that they afford. But that having been said, I was a big fan of this particular project, Lincoln Lawyer. In fact, uh, at the time the original book was made, I tried to get it, thinking, well, maybe I could leap into the feature world uh, with that one because I was very taken by the character and the world, and I didn't get it, you know karma and, and circumstances being what they were, the projects came back to me in a, in a television format. And I met with Michael Conley, uh, very much enjoyed him, and got excited about the book. And as, as it so happened, CBS had sort of the inside track to the book. So then the next conversation was, was with CBS. And uh, I will say, what they articulated to me is that, that they, too, want to compete with the streaming and cable worlds. They want to be edgier. They want to cut down on commercial breaks. And they're looking at this vehicle as maybe a way to stem the, uh, the attrition that they're, they're suffering to the cable audiences. So we'll see. Well, we're in a world now where IP seems to be everything, and people are remaking TV shows, remaking movies. You've kind of stuck to literary adaptations, Mr. Yeah. Mercedes, Lincoln Lawyer, Big Little Lies, mm -hmm. et cetera. Why and, is that? And this week, of course, you know, news broke that you're doing The Institute, mm -hmm. another Stephen King adaptation. Yeah, you know, it's uh, I. it never occurred to me that I would enjoy the adaptation process. And, and the reason for it is... You know, writing is, is very, it's hard work, especially series. It's, it's pretty much a grind. But, and the best fuel that I always found to stand up 
to that that workload was was the adrenaline and the high you got off of the idea of, of breaking a story and that there's a certain intoxication that goes with that that you've cracked a story and once you crack a story the writing part of it almost takes care of itself so if you're going to eliminate the story cracking part of the equation then you're going to be robbing yourself of some of the adrenaline and thrill of the ride. So I thought, you know, I just don't know about adaptation. It's, you're, it's probably going to be a lot of work, but without, without the high. So it was just something I never really explored. And then I did Big Little Eyes and really had a great time doing that. And then I, I realized there was room for both. You can take somebody else's ideas and you can also infuse your own. And the combination of that equation can be just a whole lot of fun. And, and uh, so I enjoyed that. And uh, that gave rise to, obviously, Big Little Lies 2 and Miss Mercedes. And uh, I'm working on another one called Nine Perfect Strangers for Hulu. Other people's books, other people's babies. I did one for HBO called The Undoing, based on a book you should have known. With Nicole uh, Kidman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really enjoyed them. So in this chapter in my life, who knows, that, that, that could be my my thing. I also feel that a writers, any writer, they have a style. They they have a. I refer to it as the screams in their belly that that are trying to get out a form of expression. And um, I had, fortunately, years and years to get those screams out. I think I I did almost four hundred or five hundred hours of television from from blank pages. My so. And I think, and in some of my latter series, Harry Law being one of them, and a couple of them, uh, I, I recognize some sameness, and everyone's going to borrow from themselves, wittingly or unwittingly. But I noticed that there were times that I was really trying to be new and fresh, and some of some of the series were reminiscent of stories I'd done on other shows. So I thought, you know, maybe it's time to seek out those original germs from other storytellers, and that. That coincided with Big Little Lies and these books coming into play and opportunities to adapt them. So uh, that confluence is, is worked out to be a, a fortunate thing at, at this point in my dinosaur life. Um, at the same time, we are in the era of reboots and revivals. Yeah. Um, there, there was talk, I think it was maybe two years ago, mm-hmm. um, about L.A. Law coming yeah. back. And you mentioned in an old THR interview that you would love to see someone, preferably a woman, revisit Allie McBeal. Yeah, I would love for Allie McBeal to come back, but it, it should be someone else should do it. I did it. So uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of... Uh, reboots per se unless they can be new and different and not just be because it makes good commercial sense is there a creative energy and a creative reason to redo it and if there is um, let's go for it but in terms of the stuff that I've done once then it that I've done it so we should find someone else to do it Allie though I would I think that would be fun to to bring that back you know in the post me too moment examine some of the issues that we attacked in those days. Some of those issues might become more poignant and more relevant. Others might be, as my my daughter would point out, Dad, I can't believe you wrote that. But I, I, it, I think it would be a timely reboot, but it would 
be best in the hands of a of a younger writer, yes, preferably female. Have have you given any thought to a, a story engine that could drive an LA Law reboot? Is that or is that totally no? Uh, Stephen Bochco and Billy Finkelstein did that, mm-hmm. and I actually thought it was going to go, and um, it didn't at the end of the day. I actually never saw the script. I remember talking to both of them about it. They were quite excited about it, but uh, you know the uh, LA Law was a groundbreaking show at the time. The same material would not be groundbreaking now. In fact, it could even feel like old-fashioned because television is so changed. That's crazy uh, to think about, though. Yeah. But it, if, if someone is going to redo it, I think that burden would have to be assumed. You've got to make it new again. Don't make it old Lang Syne. Well, you mentioned that part of what CBS was attracted to by Lincoln Lawyer was the possibility to try doing something more cable And we've now had five or six years of the broadcast networks not really being in certain conversations because they're just not relevant yeah. in the same way. Do you feel in your conversations that there's any learning actually going on? Excellent question because I, it, and it's, it's a really pertinent question with CBS because CBS for many years – would say, we want to break out of procedural. We want a character-driven show. We want to be different. We want to be represented at Emmy time. We want to break our mold. They would say that in the fall or the summer. Or in development season, In October. Yes, that's new and different, but maybe, well, by March, it was a procedural with, and, and you can't blame their track record. They... They were hugely successful and still are with a lot of these procedural shows. And uh, it, it probably was an inhibitor when it came to taking risks because uh, if, if it's not broken, why fix it? And I'm sure many inside that company felt it was not broken. However, now you have seen the erosion of audiences, and I think all the broadcast players are beginning to say, we better compete creatively or we're not going to be viable. Yeah. You know, you're also exec producing Goliath, which returns in October for its third season. You departed as showrunner, if I if I have my facts straight, in season one. How involved are you with that these days? I don't even watch it. <laughs> I haven't seen it since year one. Those who loved me have, have advised me not to. <laughs> do you have time to watch TV, honestly? Not so much. Actually, I do, and I should take more time to watch it. I, like many in the country, have, have, have spent too much time watching the news. This year I've done a better job because I'm, it's it's just not healthy to, to, to tune into that aggravation. It's good to stay informed, but uh, to sit down every night and have your buttons pushed, I, it's not. I don't recommend it. What are you watching? You know, it, it, it an, another good question because I find that question itself does not get asked among friends as much as it used to, and it doesn't get asked among colleagues as much as it used to. And my sense is, is that inside, those of us in the business, we feel like, oh my God, the teachers called on me in class and I haven't done my homework because we cannot keep up with everything that's out there. I can tell you all the shows I intend to watch that I haven't, <laughs> that I haven't caught up with yet, um, be it Fleabag or Killing Eve, it's shows I've heard are just fantastic that I can't wait to watch, Chernobyl, and I haven't got to them yet. And I do think that if you're assaulted with enough choices, 
sometimes you just won't make the choice. That's what I've I've found. I mean, I watch a lot of baseball because the idea Mm -hmm. of trying to keep up and sample so much of this content that we're writing about is overwhelming. You you do. You get overwhelmed. It's almost like going into the grocery store and you want to eat something organic and you walk down the aisle and you see that, that there are so many choices. I have a side job in the in the fish business, actually, and I went to a, an aquaculture convention in Boston. This was years ago, my my first such convention about six years ago, and um, I walked into this center, this you know uh, uh, exhibition hall, like three foot football fields long with all kinds of products, and I just laid down on the floor and I said, like, who am I kidding? How are we ever going to get market distinction with all these vendors and all this product? But the truth of the matter, it's the same in our business. There's so much out there. And it's almost easier for us, the creators to or the writers, to pretend it's not out there and just say, okay, I'm going to take care of, of what I do. And that is m- mainly my compass is to write something or, or that I love and I like and just cross my fingers and hope there's a constituency out there for it. And that that does work. But there's something lost in that, too, because you learn when you watch other people's work and uh, the way they hold the camera, the writing styles, the direction. It's all very different and diverse. And there's the opportunity to learn every time you watch somebody else's show. But the multitude of product is just so overwhelming. We're also in a landscape where producers of varying pedigrees are getting these eye-popping nine-figure overall deals yeah. from all sorts of different companies, you know, especially Netflix. You've been independent for a long mm-hmm. time. Is that, you know, have you been tempted to kind of cash in and ink a first look somewhere? A little, but only a little. Because with that much money, it's like, oh, my, my God, how do you ignore that? But... The bigger concern I have of not jumping into that marketplace, and by the way, I'm not sure any of them would want me. They're probably looking for younger guys who can carry pails up higher hills at this point. I, so I like staying a free agent. I think that the, the, the detriment to staying a free agent is once these companies become pregnant and beholden to these massive deals that they've already made, if I'm going to compete against another creator who is already in that company, who they have already spent millions and millions of dollars on to get him in-house, well, the likelihood is, if all things being equal, they're going to take his or her product over free agents where they they haven't expended those kinds of sums. But ultimately, I, I like being on the loose because if a project speaks to me and I'm, I'm passionate about it, I think I can do it. And if it doesn't, I don't have to. I used to have a, a smaller version of this thing in Manhattan Beach Studios when when I had several shows on the air. and The company got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was a great company. I enjoyed it. But there, there came a day where that company itself was a beast and the beast ne- needed to be fed. And suddenly you were going to your office to write a pilot or create a show because you cared about all these employees in the company and you wanted to make sure their their jobs were secure. So as one show went down, you had another one behind it. And that's a a nice philosophy to have as as a as a business leader and a, and a, and a leader of a corporate entity, but as a, a a creator, that's really not where the motivation should come from. You should if you want to write a show, if you feel passionate about some subject matter or some characters in your heart and you want to give life to them, that's the reason you should be doing it. And 
I think one danger of these mega deals is the creators are going to feel a lot of pressure to create, to, to pay off these deals. And that's not something I'm looking to take on at this point. Wrapping up, if you could just kind of clear up some misinformation, you know, Casey Bloys said at TCA regarding Big Little Lies and director Andrea Arnold's uh, seemingly lack of creative control. That he said that there was a lot of informa- uh, misinformation yeah. around that. And with John Mark Vallee coming back to have Final Cut, what happened? Yeah, that was a very disappointing story. And um, I guess to put it back to you, I would accuse you of, uh, of your group on your side of sort of shoddy and sensational journalism. I don't even know where the story was sourced, but but the basic, I mean, we all loved Andrea's direction, but it was clear from the get-go that she was going to direct year two. John Mark was in the wings. He was an executive producer. We were, It was an existing series, and we were going to have to make the series compatible as a whole, meaning year one and year two. But the direction she did was fantastic. The, the emotional mining of characters we all loved. The producers did their cut, like we always do in television, but it was just not, it wasn't even a deal, let alone a big deal, until suddenly this article broke. And I'm, I'm still to this day not sure where it came from. Certainly there were differing creative points of view about different cuts, different takes, different scenes, but it was kind of par for the course. It's, that happens in, in every show, and it's up to the executive producers at the end of the day to take those differing points of views and decide which ones you're going to go with and which ones you're not. But it was disappointing that that story came out because it was a pretty tight group that had a lot of fun doing the show, And um, but it happened. Mr. Mercedes Season 3 is now airing on Audience Network, and thank you so much, David E. Kelly, for joining us in the Showrunner Spotlight. My thank pleasure. You. Thank you. Number 5. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. This week's new arrivals include Undone on Amazon, Unbelievable on Netflix, and American Horror Story 1984 on FX. Dan, what's cooking? Well, first off, I have not seen American Horror Story 1984. As I have said many times, I'm looking forward to watching the first few episodes and quitting as usual. But I can't tell you if it's better or worse than usual. Fortunately, though, there are actually a lot of things to watch this week. And really, the main new releases are all pretty good to very good. Um, Unbelievable is Netflix's, I would say it is complementary to Mindhunter. It is, to some degree, it's the story of two detectives played by Merritt Weaver and Tony Collette investigating a, a serial rape case. There's also a storyline involving Caitlin Deaver as one of the victims, potentially of the same serial rapist. Maybe, maybe not. It is intense and it sounds like it is unpleasant to watch or could be unpleasant to watch. It is less wallowing than it could be. I would say that the creators, uh, Suzanne Grant, who wrote Aaron Brockovich, among other things, is the primary creator, along with uh, Alette Waldman and Michael Chabon. And it has a really good grasp of tone. It never goes too dark. It has very good insight into the criminal investigative process, what works, what doesn't. Sometimes it's even funny, and that has a lot to do with the fact that Merritt Weaver and Tony Collette are just wonderful together. It's based on a Pulitzer Prize-winning ProPublica article, and I could honestly watch multiple seasons of this, or 
of Tony Collette and Merritt Weaver being awesome. Caitlin Deaver, also awesome. I thought the eighth episode of the eight maybe is a drop in quality, maybe a little bit more contrived and conventional than the first seven, but it's an impressive piece of economical and powerful storytelling. Um, Then Undone, which sounds like it should be right there also alphabetically, which is very important, comes from uh, Raphael Bob Waxberg and Kate Purdy, who have worked together on BoJack Horseman on Netflix. This one is on Amazon, and it is a twisty, turny, rotoscoped story about a young woman who becomes unstuck in time and reality after a car accident, and her father, voiced by Bob Odenkirk, actually played by Bob Odenkirk, because that's how Rotoscope works, tells her that she has the power to help basically solve the mystery of his death or murder. The main character is played by Rosa Salazar, who people will know maybe from Alita Battle Angel or from Man Seeking Woman. She's very good. It is not as funny or quirky as BoJack Horseman, but what it is, is visually magnificent. The The rotoscoping technology and the work done by director Hisko Halsing is, is stunning to look at. I didn't care about the murder mystery really at all, but I just love watching this. This is, this is just such a beautiful show to watch, and sometimes it's a little funny, sometimes it has some big thoughts in its mind. It's very interesting. Uh, you, are you going to watch either of those two this weekend, do you reckon? I actually just started binging Elite, so I'm probably going to finish that, and then I'm hopefully going to watch some baseball this weekend, and I'm hopefully going to sit out by the pool. That all sounds good. If you need a little bit more TV, I can also, to some degree, recommend uh, Showtime's Murder on the Bayou. Showtime is getting into the same true crime miniseries uh extended storytelling market that Netflix has dominated, that obviously Amazon has done some work in. A bunch of folks have done it. It's about the investigation into the deaths of eight young women in a single Louisiana small town. It is full of rather mind-boggling details and miscarriages of justice. It is absolutely difficult to watch. It's a lot of graphic talk about you know, people selling their bodies, selling their souls and smoking crack with their parents. Uh, but it As is you're prone to do. <laughs> right. Eh, sure. You know, it doesn't look like it's that exciting a small town. So apparently you got to do what you got to do. Uh, it is harrowing, but sometimes gripping and mind boggling to watch. So that's a lot of pretty good TV to watch this weekend, I would say. So there you are. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. You can subscribe to us on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, how about writing a review? These things help us spread word of mouth. And speaking of word of mouth, come say hi to us on Twitter. We like to hear from you. And speaking again of word of mouth, if you have questions for future mailbag segments, you can reach us at TV's Top 5. That's the number 5 at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, my friend. (laughs) 